current discourse around AI seems to oscillate between boundless techno-optimism on the one hand and forecasts of our impending doom on the other. And I must confess that even in my own opinions, I find myself wavering sometimes between these two extremes. And I think one of the reasons for this is it's so hard to figure out the sort of societal and technological changes that AI is going to introduce. Uh, even just looking at the current state of LLMs like Claude 2 and ChatGPT 4, we're still figuring out all the capabilities that they possess and how we're going to implement those, how we're going to um, use those in our businesses and our daily lives. And they're just, seem, they're just the thin end of the wedge. Those models are going to become more uh, capable. At least that's what we expect. Our guest this week is John Zerilli. He's a philosopher uh, and assistant professor at, at the University of Edinburgh, uh, where his field is AI, data, and the rule of law. And he also holds positions at Oxford's Institute for Ethics and AI and at the Centre of the Future of Intelligence at the University of Cambridge. So he's really at the centre of where cognitive science, uh, artificial intelligence, and the law all meet. And in our discussion, we, we worry about some of the risks from AI, and they may not be the sort of sexy headline risks that um, grab most of the attention, but we also talk about some of the ways in which AI is not really something entirely new, but it's throwing into focus problems that we already have, um, or perhaps it's taking them to a new scale. For instance, in terms of fairness, uh, John argues really compellingly that we always have had issues with fairness. AI has actually enabled us to formalize those and understand those better. And with responsibility, where we think that it may be hard to portion responsibility in a world of AI, John points out that we've developed legal structures over the last centuries that have confronted exactly these sort of challenges. Well, if we think about the way in which AI may extend our phenotype, if you like, and enable us um, new powers while at the same time causing us to lose certain skills that we uh, currently do possess. Well, those sort of things have happened in the past with the invention of writing, for instance. Well, before we crack on with the episode, I want to give a hearty recommendation for John's book, A Citizen's Guide to Artificial Intelligence, published by MIT Press back in 2021. Two years may seem like a long time uh, ago, given all the things that have happened with AI since then. However, I think all the points that he makes are still relevant and they're very well made. I should add that he has many co-authors in this book, but there is an interesting story to the way that the authorship of the text works, which we will discuss in the episode. Without further ado, I'm James Robinson. I'm one of the founders of Robin Signal, and I'm not a robot, although there's an argument that I am partly a robot. This is Multiverses. John Zarelli, uh, thanks for joining me. Thank you for having me. So I wanted to start by talking about where we, what we should worry about most. So there are small opportunities with AI, well, actually significant ones in terms of improving, for example, medical diagnoses and replacing a lot of really boring work. Uh, and associated with those are um, some threats as well, some risks. 
um, disruption to the labor markets and so forth. And there's also huge opportunities, the opportunity of perhaps uh, solving the climate crisis, of coordinating um, societies much, much better, uh, avoiding wars and so forth. But possibly associated with the technology there are a much, much greater set of risks as well, potentially existential risk. Where do you, as a as someone who thinks about the ethics of AI, what do you devote more time to? Or what do you think is worth giving time to here? I think the problem that AI poses isn't a single problem. I think there are all sorts of problems that it, that it presents, some of which are more remote, some of which are imme- more immediate, and the ones which are popularly increasingly described as the the ones to panic about the more remote ones um, in a sense find a counterpart in what are popularly thought of as the more immediate ones so people talk about existential risk and they tend to mean something cataclysmic catastrophic of a kind where um, once we cross a threshold there's no turning back where the enslavement of the species is considered um, a real possibility. But in terms of immediate threats, which, as I say, are generally not thought of in the same um, sense as, uh, of panic and, and fear, you do have existential risks already. So, for instance, um, if a particular uh, uh, bio facility which presented a biohazard had some sort of major cybersecurity breach which meant that the um, biohazards could escape well there's an existential risk mm. right there and that doesn't seem to require any more gains in technology compute speed that's just a matter of bad faith actors getting their hands on the dial so to speak mm-hmm. So there's a problem with what you would call AI in the immediate term. Before we even start talking about superintelligence and artificial general intelligence, which poses an existential risk. So I I would worry about cybersecurity risks. I would also worry about the stuff that's not existential, but that poses uh, dangers to those that are affected by the technology. So racialized minorities, um, sexual minorities, uh, women, gender, um, imbalances in the workforce. These are things which AI does have an impact on now. And it's all very well to say they're not a matter of species life and death, but they could very well be a matter of um, individual life or death. So there's this broad array of problems and whether or not they pose an existential risk doesn't seem to map onto how sophisticated the technology is. So you can have unsophisticated technology that also poses an existential risk. I mean, the computer system that is responsible for, let's just say, if it happens, hopefully it won't, that's responsible for detonating a nuclear power plant right now in the Ukraine could be as devastating and possibly more devastating than Chernobyl. Hmm. I mean, that's, that's an existential risk and you might be able to describe the technology behind it as AI, even though it's not very sophisticated when put against 
you know, future iterations of deep learning. And then you have uh, more sophisticated technology that could lead to an artificial general intelligence, but it may pose zero existential risk whatsoever. So this is a long way of saying that the, 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 there, are two, there are two measurements. One is about technological sophistication, and that's one scale, and then another about risks and how many people stand to be in danger. And those two measurement scales are orthogonal to one, one another. Yeah, that's my understanding. If we if we think about those two dimensions, um, it it's interesting to note that the the sort of um, Zafarisha example, as you say, we may not think of the control systems there as AI, and they're probably most likely that's not the best classification of them. But it is, you know certainly the case that we, we might imagine that AI will be used more and more in, in the control systems of, of, of nuclear power stations, biofacilities, as, as you mentioned as well. As well. Um, so in some ways, we, we are, this is an extrapolation or an intensification perhaps of a, of a problem that we already have, like how do we incorporate technology into the security of, um, you know, how do we compute incorporate software into the security of, of these kind of hardware um, problems. And we might say, okay, well, as long as the AI, you know, the AI is clearly going to do a better job than what's previously done. But I wonder, again, okay, coming back to those two dimensions, is there perhaps a kind of, um, is, there, is there kind of a region in the middle of this where the AI technology is somewhat better in some ways than the technology that we have? Um, but worse in other ways, maybe it's less transparent or interpretable. Um, and we get to a kind of local minima where, where bad things happen, where we trust the AI too much. Um, we believe, you know, we overestimate its capabilities, which wouldn't happen with, for want of a better word, more old fashioned software systems. Um, is that a kind of? Otherwise, I, I I'm not sure I, I see the concern because maybe we're just making things better by introducing more soft, sophisticated controls. So I think what you're alluding to, and correct me if I'm wrong, is something to do with the extent of our reliance on a technology becoming greater as it's able to do more things. Yeah, perhaps. And interestingly, uh, a question that's often put to those on the more panic-stricken side of the AI ethics versus AI safety debate is, but can't we just turn it off? Can't we just pull the plug? And Jeffrey Hinton gave a very short and in its own way interesting answer recently when he was asked this question. He said, no, we won't be able to just turn it off or pull the plug because uh, by the time that we'll want to do that, we'll be too dependent on that system. We, we, we would have gone to a point, gotten to a point where we simply can't turn it off because if we turn it off, a whole bunch of other things will turn off as well. Mm. It'll be so integrated and it will have infiltrated our systems to the point where it just wouldn't be feasible to turn it off. So um, if the question is, are we worried that the technology will... Actually, not quite sure what the question was. Can you, can you repeat? The, 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 the yeah, I, I think you've you've rephrased it uh, very nicely. That 
you know, perhaps we overestimate, I, perhaps we'll end up overestimating some of the capabilities of AI. And as you say, that might lead to um, complacency. So we relax the oversight, I suppose, is one way of thinking about it, that we, that we have of it. Right. Or we entrust it with too much capability. Um, okay, we've covered some of the, the downsides here, but when it surpasses human capabilities, then that kind of complacency issue goes away, right? We sh- would, would we then be justified in ceding um, more control to these systems? So in a, a domain-specific sense, AI already has mm-hmm. overtaken human abilities because if you just take the ability to say process factors, um, the input space of a deep learning network would vastly exceed the inputs or the factors that we in ourselves in our own minds can hold when making a decision. Um, does that mean that we are inclined to give or, or to cede authority to it? it? It does mean that we are inclined to do that. Uh, there is research showing that as a system gets more technologically sophisticated that we tend to defer to it. Mm-hmm. That's a very well known um, thread of literature there. If the degree by which it exceeds human intelligence happens on a large enough scale and across multiple dimensions of mm. intelligence, so not just the ability to hold multiple factors at any one time, but also speed and also um, pattern recognition abilities and, and all sorts of things along multiple dimensions, will we then be more prone to defer to it or would we be less likely to defer to it? Here I think the answer depends on the extent to which we see it as being a competitor. Hmm. So there's research from the same broad field that found out that when humans work with a sophisticated technology they tend to defer defer to it. From that same body of literature you have other findings which are quite interesting. They show that when a robot becomes very sophisticated, humans don't like it. Mm. They feel threatened. Mm-hmm. But if it's something more like embedded in the systems that you're using, something like a virtual agent like Siri, mm-hmm. or um, just embedded AI in the sense of you know a, a complicated spreadsheet mm-hmm. software program, when they make well, sorry when when they become sophisticated, we tend to defer to them. We, we mm-hmm. like them. So there's something about whether humans feel threatened or not. Hmm. And when, when these embedded AI and virtual AI systems make errors or, or process things in ways that we don't expect, we generally trust them less. When they do well, when they do what they're supposed to do by our lights, then we, we defer to them. When robots do well, we distrust them. When robots make errors, we like it. Yeah. By contrast, that's kind of yeah. We get a warm and fuzzy feeling. Yeah, it's cute. It's cute. <laughs> right. yeah. So, uh, t- the answer to the question then will be d- will depend on the, the 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 mode of presentation of these systems. Whether we come to think of them more as HAL mm. from Space Odyssey, or whether we think of them as just sort of embedded yeah. in the systems around us, if they're invisible. What's interesting is that these are not problems that are inherent to AI as such that, that there's something to do with our psychological response yeah. to AI 
And so the, the complacency issue to, to recap is, is something like, as AI gets better um, or systems get better, we tend to rely on them more and more, even if we're not necessarily justified in, in, in doing so. We just kind of create, we have a habit of saying, oh, I'll, you know, it knows its thing, I'll, I'll let it do it. But interestingly, when something reaches a very high level of expertise, if it's a robot, yeah. <laughs> we feel somewhat threatened, we don't like it, and maybe we're somewhat kind of distrustworthy. But, but, but then if it does make an error, we're like, okay, well, no, it is just a stupid old robot again, yeah. that, that's yeah. fine. Um, but the packaging seems to be yes, the difference. Yeah. Yeah. If it's got an embodied packaging, like a robot, yeah. then it's almost like we view it as either a conspecific or as a predator. Mm. Whereas when it lacks a body, then it just seems like a table, a chair, a window, just something that's part of the, yeah. the environment, but not an agent in the environment. I mean, what does this say to how we should design AI in a safe way? I mean, one thing I remember reading in your book was the throwaway line, maybe we should build in errors into into AI so so that we kind of avoid that complacency problem. You know, if there was some yeah. kind of space repetition of of deliberate errors, it would kind of remind one, oh, I can't just blindly uh, trust this. And yeah. that's you know, a very counterintuitive thing for an engineer to do. Is there like, you know, it, I'm not sure how serious that suggestion was. Or... Ah, it's taken seriously. I mean, they call them, they call them catch trials and they don't always, it doesn't always go by that name, but it, it is taken seriously um, to, to simulate errors to keep the, the operator on their, mm. on their feet. I, I believe it happens uh, a lot in the training of um, pilots as well. Yeah. That, that you sort of want them to be in situations that are not just smooth sailing autopilot situations, but more out of the, out of the blue situations where they have to turn on their, or put their thinking cap on it and, and work through the problem. I'm told, I don't know if this is true, but that um, I remember being on a bumpy landing once and the chap sitting next to me was like, oh, that would be, that would be the, the one time out of 10 when the pilot's forced to land, you know, without autopilot to keep their, their eye in. Right, right. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. So. And, and on the other point, yeah, on the, the packaging of AI. So it seems safer if we were to package more up into robots. So, so maybe we should make AI look scary, right? <laughs> is, is that a good idea? Actually, that's not half, that's, I haven't thought about it, but that's not a half bad idea. Making it look at least like something that needs monitoring mm. rather than something that we can just allow to uh, blend into the background. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I think instead of having, if ChatGPT was sort of a, a robot sitting at a desk typing out yeah. <laughs> queries, I would yeah. like do a bit of a double take. Yeah, right, um, right. Whereas, yeah, the, I don't know, it feels somewhat sanitized. And... Yeah, the interesting thing about this yeah, yeah, sorry to cut you off. The other thing, interesting thing, you mentioned ChatGPT. And for, for, for all that it, it is quite astonishing, I mean, I don't myself use it very much because I don't trust its answers. Mm. The, the, the tone of its standard modus operandi is, is quite um, stereotyped. Mm. So I, I'll type a question in and I'll get it delivered back with the same sort of official um, 
Uh, what, what, I'm not quite sure what the, the term is, but it's like an official yeah. newspeak. It's, it's pretty bland. It feels like a kind of um, boring high school essay where yeah. someone's being told, oh, you have to prevent both points of view. Yeah, that's <laughs> I mean, right. And that yeah. has been programmed in somewhere. It's like, yes. oh, you have to take a very bad yeah. approach. Yeah. And you want it to say something interesting and, you know, uh, kind of a bit out there. Yeah. Um, but which, which it simply doesn't. Opinionated. Um, and, and anything that requires integrating information from before 2021 or you know from mm. the last time it, it was fed new data is unreliable any, any question you give it will generate an answer that's unreliable mm-hmm. because it's just not it's not up to date with what's been happening so I mean if you can overcome that problem there is still the, the, the fact that the way it, it interacts with you is in this very stereotyped and like you say boring fashion Mm. which constantly reminds me that I, I'm, there's, no, there's nothing behind it. The mm. lights are off. There's no one there, mm. which is fine um, if it were reliable, mm. but it's not reliable. The information that I get from it is it's just not reliable. I, can't, I couldn't use it. I mean, if you give it information and you wanted to put it in another format or if, you, if you've got references that you want to reconfigure into the Chicago Manual of Style format, fine mm. but if you're actually wanting reliable information about something it, it, it's it's I mean I haven't thought about it but it's probably like consulting uh, as we did in the in the old days an encyclopedia mm. in print form you, yeah. you, you would get reliable information from it but it was always only accurate to a point because it might have been published Ten years before it was put on the library shelf. Yeah, and, and the pace of change now is so great that one year having elapsed is is, is almost like ten years. Yeah, back in when I was at school. Yeah, I, I do find it extremely useful for certain things, and I'll maybe discuss this in a bit. But I, I, it, I, I do wonder if if this kind of lack of reliability is a good thing in terms of it being introduced to us in a somewhat half-baked form because if it did have much more recent chaining data uh, and if it was let's say you know 95% reliable perhaps we would again fall into this trap of complacency and everyone would have just adopted it for so many things and in those 5% of cases where it's failing we would uh, we, we would have problems so I mean there's been a lot of kind of criticism of open AI for releasing this generally but is there a case that maybe they've done us all a service by edging, educating us as to, you know, showing us um, something in a form where we start to appreciate its limitations. problems, limitations, yeah? Um, two things there. So the answer to the question, I would think, is no, they haven't done us a favour. <laughs> um, and, and, and there's two parts to it. Firstly, uh, the first part is, I'm not sure how widespread my own uh, response to it is. I, I tend to think people are, are still overestimating its abilities. Mm. So it might be fallible, but not fallible enough to put people on notice that it's not completely mm-hmm. reliable. I'm not sure. I, I, I haven't seen anything to suggest that people think it is um, unreliable in the, in the way that I, that I do. The, the second part is... If it were actually achieving something like 95% accuracy, uh, 95% reliability, I wouldn't have a problem with that. 
And if we became complacent in circumstances where it's achieving 95% reliability, I don't think that's a problem. I've made the point somewhat obliquely in the book that you referred to, but in, in more academic work, I've made the point that complacency isn't really an issue if the thing that we're complacent about operates so much better than a human anyway. Mm. Yeah. Because then there's, there's, there's no concern. If, if, if we were constantly looking out for it to make a mistake, but it just happens to be so much better than what the most proficient human expert would achieve, then that seems to be wasted, mm. uh, wasted energy. We could actually put our energy towards other things rather than worrying about it making a mistake. Yeah. So that's the second reason why I don't think they've done us any favours by giving us this thing that has these shortcomings and limitations. I think they would do us a favour if they made it as reliable or much more reliable than a human. Mm-hmm. In which case, then the complacency issue for me would fall away. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was probably overestimating my own reliability when I said ninety-five percent. I but uh, yeah, I think yeah, maybe that's a uh, a benchmark which, if it hit, as you say, we'd all be you know golden. And it's good to hear. I think that you know we we do forget sometimes the the benefits here. Um, and talking your book about holding AI to double standards in 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 many cases where. We demand more of it, in, for example, in terms of transparency and in, in explaining its own reasoning, um, than we demand of ourselves. Uh, but I've sidetracked myself there because I wanted to talk a little bit. I, I must sort of defend a little bit mm-hmm. um, uh, OpenAI and some of the other and the other elements there because I'm using them a lot, but oh. not probably for very different purposes as, as yourself. So maybe for purposes. For which they are more reliable. Yeah, so for code generation, yeah, for yeah. example. No, they're, they're great on that. It's incredible, yeah. yeah. Um, and one thing I've been using it for recently, which, and this might be something we can refer back to, is um, connecting uh, structured data, so a database uh, where we have, well, uh, I won't talk about, I'll use a different example to sort of protect some <laughs> Possibly sensitive information, but um, so let's imagine that you're a supermarket, um, which I and I worked in a supermarket in their um, demand forecasting division, and we would always get uh, questions. So this is a Tesco, and the CEO of Tesco would say, "Oh, in my local store in Hertfordshire, we were out of bananas on this day. Like, what the hell's going on, guys?" And then you know, scores of like twenty uh, <laughs> something, yeah, twenty something, yeah. like maths and physics graduates would like type away yeah. try to figure out what had gone wrong um, and it was you know big enterprise so what I've been doing now is just connecting you know similar similar structured databases to LLMs and you can say why were there no bananas in this store on this date uh, and it will go in and it will create a SQL query so it will create a you know, write, write some code translate that into code and it will bring back a result and it will also show you the query that it ran and uh, so forth. So, and it is really interesting because it often works incredibly well. And it will summarize the results for you as well. It will say, oh, because, um, you know, we underestimated the weather. It was a really hot week that week. And the model that orders fresh food, um, we, we had the wrong predictions for, for heat there. And people were like, uh, you know, 
home picnics and stuff and eating the Reaching for the gelatos <laughs> yes. rather than the bananas. So you can kind of, I mean, it's been like a revelation to me and like how well things like that because in the flashy parlance of startups, democratize access to data. But it's also been eye-opening how, you know, sometimes it just goes wrong and the query just like does something completely off, off the wall. <laughs> There's many questions we could ask about this. One thing I've been thinking about is responsibility in this, like what, what does happen when the query goes, goes wrong. Um, so a little bit of a segue here, but yeah. maybe, yeah. Who, do you think that these sort of models could, you know, undermine the apportionment of responsibility? Let's say the CEO goes out and like says, okay, well, we've got to fire the guy who uh, does the weather forecasting or something. <laughs> um, who's responsible? Like, and it was on the basis of a LLM hallucinating, essentially, yeah. uh, and, and getting the query wrong. Should it be me who set up the interface who gets fired or yeah so on these questions i'm a pretty traditional person pretty traditional guy on these questions and and i i guess this comes down to my first career having been in law Mm -hmm. so i've looked at the current system of um uh, a portion so the regime for attributing responsibility to someone in a chain and the principles that have been developed over a couple of hundred years mm. still seem to, to work here. I've not seen anything to suggest that those systems or those principles wouldn't work mm-hmm. here. So first thing to say is that we have an adversarial system in, in this country and in you know, the common law world. So if someone's going to be blamed, it, it always comes down to some victim somewhere making a claim and then wanting to sue someone mm-hmm. so they will pick whoever is in their sights that person then always has the option of cross claiming against someone else who they think is more implicated in mm-hmm. in the cup than someone else mm-hmm. uh, or than themselves and then of course uh you have a question there whether as between those two the the defendant or or, or the 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 cross defendant um, is either more responsible than the other or is responsible to the exclusion of the other. But all of that gets sorted out on established principles mm-hmm. where you basically, you ask yourself, say if it's a, if it's a claim in negligence, you ask yourself um, who had the duty of care in this mm-hmm. circumstance? Uh, what was it that they could reasonably foresee would go wrong? Um, and what should they have done to prevent the damage that was reasonably foreseeable? And using established principles like that, and then tests for causation, and then tests for what they call remoteness of damage, you can pretty much work out a reasonable settlement. And it just happens, Mm -hmm. naturally, in the course of litigation or the process that precedes litigation that anticipates litigation. So maybe we don't end up fighting this out in court, but because we know how this will shape up, the parties adopt a particular stance where they know that if they go to court, this is probably what will happen. Therefore, Mm -hmm. perhaps we should push harder or perhaps we should relent a little bit and settle for less money. It all just comes out in the wash. And I haven't seen anything um, 
that suggests that that's not going that system that, that, that those those principles won't operate in this area what it would take to get an ai be one of the defendants so to speak mm. in in the, in that really just depends on uh, another question which is what does it take to be a responsible agent what does it take to be yeah. to have moral agency and here again i mean there's there's disagreement but it's it's not it's not large disagreement you've got two types of agents roughly speaking you have cognitive agents and this basically includes the whole whole of the animal world mm-hmm. okay so any anything that acts as an agent even a bacterium could be classified as an agent and then you've got moral agents so what does moral agency bring to cognitive agency so what does cognitive agency consist in cognitive agency consists in something like having um, a feed forward mechanism at a very basic level where you take in inputs and then these inputs are worked on mm-hmm. until and they're sort of fed up a hierarchy and then come out as an output at the other end so that's part of what it takes to have cognitive agency another tweak to that in evolution was when evolution developed recurrence mm-hmm. where you take the output at any particular level in that hierarchy and feed it back into that level mm-hmm. and that enables um, a system to kind of generate its own kind of memory to retain um, in in memory, so to speak, or in mind, long distance relationships. This helps tremendously in navigation. So bees, for example. So the neural systems of bees, who are very good at navigation, uh, have recurrence. Another step would be to have multiple networks, multiple recurrent networks, so then you get parallelism. And that's You've got that in mammals, fish, reptiles. So that's all to speak speaks to the cognitive agency here. What do you need above that to get a system to be a moral agent? Well, most people, most philosophers who think about this, okay, they disagree about certain details, but they all agree, more or less, that it requires the ability to not just sort of have reasons for acting but to be able to revise those reasons to sort of to change one's goals um, as as one philosopher christine Korsgaard, puts it, it it's not just the ability to have reasons but to see what reasons you have so mm. a lion might you know move a certain direction for the reason that there's prey over there on the savannah and they're going to chase mm the prey but they can't see that reason they can't sort of step out of that process and examine that as a reason whereas humans can Mm -hmm. and moral responsibility seems to be connected with this ability to reflect revise Mm -hmm. and um, act upon reasons but also change the reasons we act upon so that answers the question about when can an ai be a defendant and Mm -hmm. potentially one of the people who will be attributed responsibility in in any scenario where something bad happens. So as I see it, to sum up, there's no responsibility gap as far as I see it. The tried and tested principles over several centuries developed in the courts will work just fine until AI develops this extra capacity. Mm. And I haven't even mentioned the role of sentience in that. So some philosophers would say, even having the ability to revise one's goals mm. isn't enough. You kind of need sentience because without mm. sentience, 
you can't punish the thing. You mm-hmm. can't blame the thing. I mean, if it's just dead matter, it's like slapping a brick. You know, <laughs> yeah. what's the brick going to do? So uh, I haven't mentioned that. But that's what it would take yeah. to get a system being held responsible. I, I think, I mean, uh, there's certainly grounds for optimism here, certainly on, on the first point. As you say, the, the structures seem to be in place. And they're not trivial structures either you mentioned they've, they've evolved over the past couple of hundred centuries and you there's a nice um you reference uh, carl mitchum in in your book uh, i should i mentioned i should mention the name of your book which i will do at the beginning of the podcast but to remind people it's uh, a citizen's guide to artificial intelligence um and as an aside it's a very interesting way that you wrote it because you had all Lots of people wrote in different yeah. chapters, but then yeah. you sort of provided the, the, the style and rewrote things, yeah. Yeah. almost like an AI. That's right, that's right. <laughs> Being yeah. fed in all yeah. the stuff. And I wrote about stuff. half the book, and the rest of it I, I found off to people who I thought had more expertise. Yeah. And then they gave me notes, and then I sort of reconstituted them so that the whole thing would read in one in one voice. So this is a, yeah, this is a good exercise in collective intelligence and coherence. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so the, the, the reference to Carl Metron is just, he said, yeah, oh, you know, we've, we've evolved, as technology has evolved since the Industrial Revolution, you know, we've evolved our um, understanding or mechanisms for uh, assigning responsibility. Uh, and, and, you know, there's very simple examples of that in terms of, you know, the, the invention of corporations. And actually some... I think probably the corporation as a site is an interesting example where just the creation of that um, legal framework was itself a technological innovation in a sense in that it um, separated the the liability of individuals uh, from their companies and it just, you know, I think probably led to a lot of um, more risky uh, endeavours, which so far has been a good thing. <laughs> like Without that, we wouldn't have... Um, you know, the railways and things like yeah. that. Um, on the second point as to sort of agency and responsibility, I, I think, yeah, I, I agree with everything you said. I think there is a, maybe something that's just snuck in there, which is it's very hard perhaps to determine when those reflective um, capabilities are, are present in something or, or not. I mean, famously... Uh, skeptics uh, through the centuries have um, questioned whether it's present in other humans, yes, right? Yeah, like, yeah. We we see um, you know we see all the outward signs of it, but seeing the inward reflections is just it's just not well with humans. It's not possible. Interestingly, there might be a way that we can kind of um, actually measure it in these AIs better that we than we could in human humans. humans. Yeah. Like, I mean, we, yeah. we, we know how many, you know, we know how many loops uh, or neural networks just do a single kind of pass, as it were, through, mm. through the circuit. Mm. They, they, they don't cogitate, I, I suppose one might say. Yeah. Um, nonetheless, I think there's going to be... There are questions about uh, how we know that some, some system has attained a certain level of, of, of cogitation, of cognitive sophistication. Absolutely, there will be yeah. questions. And I think it's quite an emergent property as well. Like, I would say that there are these kind of feedback, there are self-reflective behaviours or, or capabilities in, 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 in lots of things. As you mentioned, like, you know, bacteria have some form of agency. Um, I'd agree with that. I, I think 
and, and, I, and I think it parallels the questions around consciousness. I don't think we can quite separate them out. Um, you mentioned that some people would say, well, sentience and can be separated out from this. I, I think certainly I, I wouldn't be able to cleanly divide between consciousness at least and, and the ability to self-reflect. But I don't think that self-reflection is a on-off switch either. I don't think there was a single point in human evolution where I was like, lights gone on, we're, we're conscious now, <laughs> right? Um, uh, I, I really like um, Douglas Hofstadter's kind of thinking on this and it, it's no accident that his book Going Leisure Back is, you know, a thousand pages long, yeah, yeah, <laughs> like yeah. full of lots of different um, examples. I haven't kept up with this part of the consciousness literature, but there are people who take sides on the question whether consciousness is something that fades in mm. or whether it comes on in an instant. Mm. And the people on the side that think it's more like an on-off switch would say, what can it possibly mean to be um, sort of aware? Mm. In the sense to have, how can you, how can you have, sort of have something it's like to be? Yeah. How can you sort of have a touchy-feely sense? Like... The minute you can feel it all, that's it. You're, you're in it. It's like you can't be half pregnant. Yeah. You're either pregnant or you're not. I, I, I haven't invested much time at all, but I've, I've heard people argue quite passionately for both sides of that. Yeah. Yeah, I think I need to explore the other side. That's always a good approach. Um, so we've talked a bit about responsibility, and it's, uh, I would say... Again, we see this pattern of AI is in some ways not a new thing. Yeah. It's maybe um, possibly going to stretch the capabilities that we already have in place or the, or the systems that we already have in place. But yeah, at least in that case, I don't think it's going to break it. Um, just give me, can I just yeah. say one, one little thing about that? At the end of the 19th century, the question arose, what if my sheep walk across the boundary between our two properties and start eating mm. your grass. And the court has mm. just said it's the responsibility of the person that owns the sheep. Even though the sheep have their own minds, yeah. it's just the landowner who owns the sheep yeah. that's going to be blamed for it. So, I mean, even if you get AI being extremely sophisticated, short of actually being a capable defendant in its yeah. own right, one one response is just to go back to that yeah. that principle and just say, well, you made it, so if it does, if it has a mind of its own, yeah. that's neither here nor there. I think it, you know it, it's important that we don't. It does seem that, that that there are some hangups in responsibility that are maybe slowing down progress in some places. The the thing that's coming to my mind right now is is self driving cars. We have about one point three million road deaths per 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 year now. Your book said 1.2, but it's probably gone up since okay, then because yeah, yeah, yeah. I looked this morning. Yeah. So 1.3 million road deaths per year. It's the, the eighth largest cause of uh, death. And um, I'd be interested to know if anyone's looked at quality-adjusted uh, years, uh, loss of quality-adjusted It's probably even higher there. It's a terrible thing. And we may not be at full at the level of self-driving capabilities that we need to be yet to, to solve that fully, but we could possibly um, take a pretty, pretty big chunk out of those numbers, even where we are now. Right. With the technology that With we the, have. Yeah. But what I want to say is that many people are concerned that 
if, if we were to jump to having complete deployment of self-driving technologies and, and we would we would have issues with responsibility but I mean in your book again you, you seem to have a pretty simple solution for that right in and if I if I get you right you think that just having um, no-fault compensation schemes so you just need insurance right which if an accident is caused like however it happened like you don't blame the driver you don't take the AI to court it's just forget about all that just compensate right I mean that seems to me like a, a good way of making progress um, yeah it's a system they have in New Zealand for personal injury anyway. mm-hmm. yeah and it, it, it works pretty well I mean I, I lived in New Zealand for two years and I actually made a claim on the scheme once for an injury that I had and it seemed to work pretty fine I didn't have to blame anyone I'm not well versed in in the accident compensation scheme in New Zealand but I'm sure there are people that would be able to say there's room for improvement mm-hmm. but it seems like a, a, a sane rational way forward yeah and, and even if it's not perfect if what we're gaining from it is let's say an extra million or a reduction of a million lives lost a year yeah. so you know that's a million extra years of human life per year uh, I mean that seems like a good a good trade-off um, yeah so I, I wanted to I wanted to talk about fairness now which again I think is something yeah. where it's not so much that AI is changing the game entirely but it's perhaps throwing a light on issues that we already had maybe yeah. possibly exacerbating maybe not you have a really nice sort of breakdown of the different dimensions of, of, of fairness. Um, so perhaps you could you could take us through those. Yeah. So one of the things that I like about working in AI and AI ethics is that it tends to throw new light on old problems. Mm. So 20 years ago, if you would ask me, what does it mean to be fair? We could have had a conversation about how fairness might mean a lot of different things depending on who you ask. I think maybe a better answer even back then would have been fairness in general means something like equal treatment. Yeah. So that if, for example, someone uh, gets a parking ticket and the car in front of it, who is also illegally parked, doesn't get a parking ticket, that's unfair. Yeah. So fairness has something to do with that. It's different from justice. Yeah. Justice is about, in general, everyone getting their due. And that's a notion that goes kind of back to Thomas Aquinas, everyone getting what they are owed. Whereas yeah. fairness is, is more about equality in that yeah. system of giving people what they owe. What strikes me here, actually, is already with this very intuitive this definition, very, that, yeah, yeah. that there is a tension in yes. that you want to treat people equally, given the same set of Correct. You know, yes. background. Yes, like, you know, Given that they both parked illegally. Yes. But yes. not given that, you know, one is black and one is white, right? Yeah. Like, that may yeah. not be something that you want to include in that kind of background. Right. Like, what are yeah. the... It's, yeah. It's the equal treatment of equals um, and the unequal treatment of unequals Mm -hmm. Um, and unfairness would be the equal treatment 
of unequals and the unequal treatment of equals. So if you've got two people that are, for all relevant purposes, the same, and yet one gets the parking ticket and the other one doesn't, that seems to be unfair. Yeah. So that's how we would have had a conversation 20 years ago, right? AI doesn't change that so much, but it, it puts a slightly different spin on it. So uh, 20 years ago, maybe people would have, in a class, in a seminar, would have come up with different definitions of fairness. They might have all agreed with the general uh, definition about equal treatment, just as you did. But then, just as you did, they might have um, gotten a little bit more in the weeds and sort of tried to mark out what it means in specific cases. So with AI, um, that, that, has, that has actually happened. You, you've got these attempts to operationalize fairness mm. for different AI systems. And so one way of operationalizing fairness would be, for example, to ensure that whatever the demographic that the algorithm is applied to, whatever demographic it's deployed on, community, the Hispanic community, um, it should, it, the algorithm should work so that the same number of false positives and false negatives, uh, roughly speaking, mm -hmm. are present in both demographics, across these demographics. That would be fair by one operationalization of, of fairness. Another way of, of operationalizing it would be to say that um, the same... Um, uh, the same, let's say, score mm. that the algorithm gives you um, should it should mean the same thing mm -hmm. regardless of the demographic that it's applied to. So 7 out of 10 mm -hmm. should basically pick out roughly the same proportion of people, whatever the demographic, so that it holds the same way. If 7 out of 10 means um, that you get way more people being picked out uh, for uh, getting a loan, for example, than in another community, mm -hmm. another demographic, uh, where the members of that other demographic also get a 7 out of 10, then that makes that algorithm unfair. So that's yeah. another way of operationalizing it. There's, there's a whole bundle of them, right? And it, it happens that uh, using pretty simple algebra, you can show that so long as these different demographics have... Um, different base rates so for example it, it, we're talking about we're talking about loans okay so let's talk about that so long as the hispanic community overall has a different rate of defaulting yeah on its loans yeah uh, when compared with uh, the, uh, say the african-american community then you are you are not going to be able to to get an algorithm that satisfies all of the different operationalizations of fairness. Yeah. It's going to fall foul of most of them, yeah. even as it satisfies one. And if you want to prioritize the other one, then you're going to have to sacrifice the original yeah. so, definition. So what that what that that the light that that shows, uh, no, sorry, sorry, the light that, that throws on um, age-old questions of fairness is we kind of already knew that different people would have different intuitions about fairness. What we didn't know is that they're actually irreconcilable. Mm. We didn't know that. There was an old debate that goes back to sort of the, the, the fox and the hedgehog about whether values are fundamentally 
coherent and can cohere in, in, a, in a, an overall system or whether some values just conflict with others and are irreconcilable. There was that debate. But this, is, this has made it clear that to a certain extent some values are incommensurable. Yeah. Yeah, it's, I, th- I think it's worth just going, looping back over this. Mm-hmm. You said it very clearly, but it, it's such a striking and, and important result, which, as you say, it's, it's nothing to do... AI has not introduced the problems here. These yes. are just fundamental yeah. difficulties with, with fairness, and we have this choice between, you know, you want to have... Um, it's called... Uh, classification error parity, if yes, you want to give yes. it a fancy name. Yeah. So, um, for example, in the... The loans example, you'd want to say, okay, that the number of people um, not not granted loans who uh, should have actually been granted loans. It might be actually easier to talk in terms of another example from your book, the recidivism yes. one. So, yeah. uh, because kind of hard to say that someone wouldn't have defaulted on a loan when they weren't given it, if you're not know right. Yeah. So the, the 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 recidivism one is is about calculation of the likelihood that a um, Say a prison inmate. A prison inmate goes on to recommit. Commit another offence if they're released on parole. And and a false positive would be something like, it says that they will recommit an offence and it so happens that they are released and they don't. They don't, yeah. And false negative would be, it says that they're not going to recommit an offence, they're released and they they do. And they do, yeah. Um, And you want those kind of, the rates of those errors to be the same for different um, groups of people. You want to say, okay, well, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to tread, you know, over cautiously for the um, African American community, and 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 and, and but I, and I have very few false positives and false negatives, and on the other hand, do something different for Hispanics. Yeah. That, yeah, that's fair, right? That, that seems fair. That's, that seems yeah. fair. Yeah. Um, good. So we want that. We also want to say, well, but if I say that there's a 0.7 uh, or a 70 percent chance of um, going on to commit an offence again, that means the same for everything, everyone. And, yeah. and, and that, again, to give this a fancy name, this is the kind of calibration um, requirement. Again, you know, that, 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 seems fair. that seems more than fair. That seems just kind of completely rational, yes. right? If it doesn't yeah. mean that, then, uh, you know, what does your number even mean? Um, but you can't have your cake and eat it, as it were, right? Yeah. Like, that's yeah. just um, provable. Um, and <laughs> so... Yeah, in some ways, like AI is doing us a service here, in that we're, we're yeah. you know, we're formalizing the difficulties that we had in our kind of folk notions of of, of fairness. Yeah, um, I'll say it's something really interesting about that. So you just made the point that that second measure of fairness, um, calibration, mm. seems you said more than fair. It just seems rational or something yeah. like that, right? <laughs> well, here's another interest, really interesting result. Um, a philosopher at the Australian National University, Brian Hedden, has a fantastic paper where he shows that actually, if you get all of these different measures of fairness mm. and um, you test them all by um, against a procedure which everyone intuitively would agree is fair, then only one of them um, is not... Uh, uh, only one of them kind of yields the result that the algorithm is fair. Let me explain what I mean. Mm -hmm. So let's just say there are 10 different uh, measures of fairness. Mm -hmm. Then you've got this separate little um, thought experiment 
where you, I don't know, you, 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 you I, I, I can't quite re recall the details of it. It's been some time since I read it, but there's like uh, a way of allocating, um, say, some particular resource right. where everyone would agree that that is fair. It's purely random. It's almost like throwing dice. Right, right, right. right. And, and you just, no one's going to dispute that it was fair. If the dice come up one way, Mm -hmm. then that's, that's the result. If the dice come up another way, that's the result. This is extracting a lot of detail from the paper. You know? Right. People should go and read the paper by so Brian Hedden. Brian, Brian Hedden. Okay, yeah. good. The surname is H-E-D-D-E-N. Okay. Um, and it's published in a journal called Philosophy and Public Affairs. So um, anyway, everyone, you kind of have to agree from the, from the get-go that this, this dice-throwing procedure is fair. And what Brian does is he says, okay, which of, now that we all agree that this dice thing here is fair, which of all these definitions of fairness would be uh, met? So he applies, you know, the first measure of fairness, say it's um, parity. Well, turns out it would, dec it would result in that dice-throwing experiment it would say that that's unfair mm. and then you just work through them mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and all of them say that the dice throwing experiment is unfair by the lights of those mm. particular measures except when you get to calibration when you get to calibration the one that you said mm. seems more than fair that yields the result that the dice throwing game mm -hmm. is fair and so brian concludes on that basis that the only measure of fairness we really should care about is calibration because mm. that's the only one which yields the result that this dice mm. thought experiment comes out as fair, which we all antecedently agreed was fair. There's been some interesting commentary on, on that paper, but I was extremely impressed by the, the elegance yeah. of the setup. It's a very smart way of thinking about things. It, it's interesting though because I also feel like maybe... It, it's starting with the assumption that our kind of intuitions are correct. Um, but sometimes we, we realise that the sort of manifest image and the scientific image are, are in opposition. Yeah, right, right. Um, and so maybe, you know, there, there is an argument that actually, no, like our intuitions are wrong. Um, and, but we just need to reflect on that pretty strongly. Yeah. I, I want to mention another, because... Uh, another of notion of fairness, which I don't know if this if it's kind of somehow encompassed in one of the others, but it's I think you call it anti-classification, which is just not using, um, yes. for example, ethnicity in in your models or even proxies yes. for that as yes. far as one 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 can avoid. Um, and that and the other kind of requirements can all be in. Um, yeah, that can clearly conflict with predictive accuracy as well. How do you view, by the way, is, is calibration and predictive accuracy, are they kind of separate dimensions or are they almost like the same thing? I, I guess they are separate, right? Because one can have a well-calibrated model, but because we leave out many things from the model, it's less predictive. Yeah, um, that's or, my understanding. Or, or less accurate. Yeah. Um, so not only do we have this conflict between the, the dimensions of fairness, we also have a conflict between fairness and the quality of the predictions because you know there are cases where um, 
ethnicity maybe not so much itself mm-hmm. but as a proxy for many other things for yeah. example poverty and, 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 and so forth um, can be very predictive, predictive. of, of yeah. certain things, things um, yeah. and but nonetheless like so, so we have I think that's probably more understood the conflict between predictive accuracy and um, and fairness yeah, but worth recapping that <laughs> We have got multiple yeah. uh, difficult. Th- so there's conflicts between different measures of fairness, yeah. and conflicts between any one of those measures of fairness and accuracy. Yes, on, on, on the other side. Yeah. But again, this is not. Don't blame the AI, right? Just, right. just I don't know. Just blame yeah. the mathematics of life. I yeah. don't know. The mathematics of life and whatever it is in our society that means that you have different base rates mm. for these different. Um, yeah, phenomena, whether yes. it's recidivism risk or whether it's defaulting on a loan. Why Why is it that different demographics are like yeah. that? And you can probably track a lot of it, maybe not all of it, but a lot of it down to um, injustice that has been filtered through intergenerationally from yeah. colonialism, original dispossession, you know, acts of violence against um, native populations, and then that sort of filters through the mm-hmm. opportunities that the next generation have and... Um, and then the new generation grows up with the sort of the 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 kind of inheriting the the the, the emotional trauma of the mm. older generation. I mean, these are very complex. Yeah, questions. They are, and uh, yeah, we don't want to say go down too much of a tangent yeah, here. Yeah, but yeah. I, you know, is there an opportunity that AI can help us address some of the things? One of the questions at the back of my mind, often when I think about these, is. You know, broadly speaking, do we try to do something like the French do, where you know um, ethnicity is factored out of? They try to factor ethnicity out of everything. Uh, simple example, you know, if you're filling in a library application here, you, you have a box. You, you can say prefer not to say, but you can tick your ethnicity if you like. Right. That doesn't happen in France, right? The, you're not allowed to collect statistics on things at different. Um, um, for different ethnicities, mm. um, and the French would say, "Well, you know, this is this is what it means to treat everyone equally uh, and to be fair." Um, but of course, you then can't track things like are you know are our public services being um, reaching the people that they need to um, in yeah. disadvantaged communities and, yeah. and so forth. Yeah. Um, so again, I think you know AI sort of supercharges these issues because. Yeah we can either choose to put this possibly sensitive data into our models and maybe use those to correct for some of these things, or we can say, no, we just don't want any place for these um, in the society that we build going forward. Mm -hmm. Um, But then we might make it harder to correct for the errors of of the past. Um, So I just laid down a lot on the plate there. Um, It reminds me that um, even with the criminal recidivism example, if you did take away um, factors like gender, then you really are going to degrade the accuracy mm. of the algorithm just because men are much more likely to reoffend than, than women. Mm. So if we, if we take gender out completely, you, you could see that that would be tremendously unfair on women who yeah. get basically treated the same way as men. As they are for insurance purposes here. Yes, in the UK. yes, <laughs> yes. 
So that's a case of the, um, uh, the equal treatment of unequals, yeah. which gives you an unjust result, an unfair result. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so, uh, yeah, where do we go from here? We have, we've seen, let's put it like this. So what are the opportunities then for AI to to do better than humans in some of these things. We have a lot of, you know, maybe with recidivism or, or something like that, where, you know, previously we've always had to take these decisions. We've always had yeah. to estimate the likelihood of people defaulting on loans or of, um, you know, committing, recommitting offences. Uh, yeah. We're now very worried because, or, or many people are very worried because we, we want to bring algorithms into this. But isn't there just a simple response which to say, well, algorithms are, they can do this better. We can formalize our, our requirements or our, our preferences um, and they can potentially explain themselves better as well. Um, so I would say we should think of AI in the same way that uh, the 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 telescope was thought of in the seventeenth century. Mm. It's naturally augmenting abilities that we already have. So with my naked eye, I can't make out the surface of the moon, mm -hmm. but with the device, with these two lenses put a certain space apart, you can suddenly see the surface of the moon in astonishing detail. So uh, Daniel Dennett talks about cognitive prosthetics, things mm. that you can sort of used to enhance your your ability your reach your purchase on the world yeah and i mean if it, people didn't use telescopes to to hit one another one another over the, the head but with ai it seems we can do the, the stuff that gives us greater purchase on the world but we can also hit one another over the head we can also do harm so sometimes you know in my more cynical or bleaker moments I'll be apt to think the internet was a mistake yeah. and then somebody replied to me recently and said so was fire so was the wheel yeah which just goes to show <laughs> with every great Promethean discovery comes both the potential for great opportunities but also devastating challenges and I think it was was it Oppenheimer um, it might have been Oppenheimer in fact who said something quoted the Bhagavad Gita and said I am become death the destroyer of worlds when he knew oh, right. the, this power that had yeah. been unleashed yeah. with the atomic bomb so AI uh, does I see the, the, the greatest potential for it in drug discovery because, you know, all life as we know it is based on DNA-based pairs. Mm. And because these nucleotides, four little things that combine and recombine um, in, you know, infinitely, this is um, discrete mathematics on steroids and the opportunity mm. to discover proteins and create interventions, therapeutic interventions that the human mind unassisted would just never think mm. to come up with mm. drug discovery for me is the the huge boon 
the huge potential of AI. And, and obviously also um, accelerating discoveries that will help us wean ourselves off fossil fuels. Yeah. As for the dangers, well, I, I mentioned one before, which is cybersecurity, cybersecurity threats, uh, which are connected mm -hmm. with, with AI, but also just the fact that everything now, we, we, we are so connected with the digital world. We, we, we're sort of digital beings now. Yeah. That thinking of all the passwords that you have to keep track of in yeah. order to shield yourself from from vulnerability, I, I just, sometimes it's overwhelming, just the extent to which we are dependent on on the technology, that if something were to happen to those systems, if the internet really ever did crash, I think it would just be indescribably horrific. <laughs> I, 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 so, so, I mean, that's a danger that's not often called an AI danger, it's not an AI existential risk, but it's at least as, as, as much as any other one of the fantasy scenarios that has been sketched for us something to worry about yeah so it's fire in the wheel again yeah we're back it's another promethean moment yeah it's very hard i think to weigh up the the risks versus the rewards here given and that, that that's that's possibly the case with many of the inventions i mean nuclear energy as well we know there is some small possibility that 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 destroys everything but it's it's also one of the one of the possible answers to the the climate crisis um and it, it seems like we're kind of taking a bet flicking a coin uh every time it lands the right side up everything gets better but at some point maybe we <laughs> we end up with it going the wrong way and it just destroys everything um and it's hard to calculate the your expected sort of out, you know, returns in that scenario. You might say, okay, well, it's just you know, the probability of it all going wrong. Um, you know, assign that some zero utility, but maybe maybe it's infinitely negative, right? <laughs> if we destroy the whole, and we get into like problems of mathematical problems within with infinities. But um, I mean, coming back to just the kind of more, yeah, immediate problems. I I guess yeah, certainly drug discovery. That's a big benefit. Uh, it was interesting to see though recently that um, people ran that backwards and they're like, oh, just design for me the worst viruses that you could. Yeah. Um, uh, so a, a lot hinges on, again, it's this, it's these cognitive prosthetics which magnify the capabilities of, of humankind. And if one is a an optimist or a Aristotelian just believes that everyone's you know, innately good, then this is probably going to end well. Yeah. Um, on the other hand, the pessimist might say, well, actually, it only needs a few folks to uh, go the other way, and this could end uh, very badly. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I struggle with the, I don't know, the, 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 the mathematics here of um, how we we balance these uh, I mean if you think about it in a country like the US ev everyone can have a gun in their back pocket mm. you know in theory 
Um, so the question, and, and yet, you know, that society is obviously it has had to confront its 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 gun laws in in very tragic ways multiple times in in the past. But it's not like everyone has a a biohazard in their back pocket. Mm. So the worry with AI is whether everyone will have a biohazard in their back pocket because you might have enough garage hobbyists who can um, fine-tune an LLM where it can do real damage to Mm. systems, Mm. um, hospitals. Um, It can breach, um, say, security in court data systems. Mm. It can erase records about who's committed crimes. I mean, Mm. all sorts of things which is like everyone having or enough people having a biohazard in their back pocket. That's yeah. that's the worry. But other countries outside of the US regulate guns so that not everyone can have a gun. The question is, can we do something similar for yeah. biohazards? Yeah, yeah. Can we stop... Or from AI. Or from AI. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Can, can, we, can we stop the people in the garage, the bad actors in the garage, mm-hmm. using their fine-tuned LLMs to wreak havoc? Even if it's things like on a mass scale, ringing people up, with a fake, a deep fake yeah. voice, you yeah. Know, yeah, pretending that it's a loved one. And it doesn't have to work every time, account. but it can work, you it, know, it, if it works 1% of the time. Yeah, like. yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so that is the question, whether we can, there's an equivalent of um, a law against guns or a law that regulates guns yeah. in this area. And what are you, I mean, I mean, suddenly it seems like... It's taking shape. Right. I, I don't, I don't, we don't know if it, if it is a gun yet. Like, right. we don't know what the shape of the gun is, I suppose. I, I, I think it comes back to, you know, AI is many different things, there's many yes. specialised systems, and yeah. we can't, you know, it's got to be more nuanced than that. But certainly, like, the, the deep fake example is one which, you know, many people have been calling for, well, yeah. there's very few legitimate use cases for deep fakes. Yeah. I actually would quite like a personal deep fake, so I could sometimes sit in in some meetings and, you know look thoughtful and make good comments but yeah. <laughs> it might do a better job than me but, but also dubbing in films yeah you know when the yes. lips are all yeah. get out of sync with the, the dubbing yeah another, another good but, but you know there's a lot of cases that we, we, we don't think are legitimate here mm. um, let's presume that the laws are made that, that do this uh, that, that prevent the misuse of this do we think that they could be Effective, or is this just a sort of technology which is just very, very hard once it once it's out of the box to put it back in? My sense is that it's too early to say. Mm. I think it's just too early to say. You can, you can, you know, you can write a law that will, like the 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 EU's law, will purport to cover a certain range of activities mm. and regulate them. Whether it works or not, we have to wait and see. Yeah. I mean, that is the random, sort of the best thing, the, the closest thing to a randomised controlled trial we're going to have. How effective are the EU laws going to be yeah. in the, over the next, say, five years? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, yeah, I think that'll be interesting. I mean, one of the kind of grounds for hopefulness here, presuming that one does want the laws to work, maybe not everyone does, is that at the moment there are a 
few companies which have built very, very powerful models, which are the ones which are attracting all the attention. And it's not like I can have uh, a huge LLM on my machine at the moment, but mm. there is a, a parallel. I've heard the worry that if we do regulate this, it may have this kind of paradoxical um, results where people get much better at being computationally efficient and right. so you know the regulation would stop you yeah. going to amazon and buying a million hours of compute time without yeah. you know some scrutiny over what you're doing with that yeah. the regulation would stop you accessing um you know open ai api for, for deep fakes unless you've got some kind of badge of approval for for that um but the regulation would be ineffective against you saying i'm just going to build this myself yeah. i'm going to use a small yeah. server farm um, and like necessity is the mother of invention. Exactly, so the regulation changes yeah. the necessity. Yeah. Uh, um, again, like we're, we're probably not qualified to answer this, um, but we're certainly qualified to speculate. <laughs> um, yeah, is I don't know. Is is that something that we should worry about? Um, it, so, if, if any of the Silicon Valley people. Um, make this case for why we shouldn't have regulation. That would be very interesting yeah. because then that's basically saying the regulation will make us more efficient, which isn't something you normally associate with yeah. techno-libertarian, utopian, Silicon Valley type. Look, I think it is a possibility that some regulations will, as I say, create new incentive structures and necessities around which then we devise ingenious means to circumvent them, which may end up defeating the purpose of the regulation. Yes. Mm. I mean, again, how far that will happen, it's, we need a randomised controlled trial. I don't know. Mm. I don't know how, 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 how true that will be. It's, we can also say, we can apply the same reasoning to guns and say, yeah, but when people aren't allowed to get guns yeah. readily and en masse, yeah. won't they just devise ingenious little slingshot things to put in their back pocket yeah. that, that don't yeah. look like yeah. guns and then they'll use those and then that will defeat the purpose of the regulation well that hasn't happened yeah. <laughs> so yes it can happen but it just hasn't and we don't know whether it'll happen here mm. good um, I think let, let's get even more speculative yes okay. I, I want to go down this route of um Cognitive prosthetics, uh, and yeah, is there a kind of a very different sort of danger here, um, where we just lose sense of what it is to be to have agency, to be um, to think about things, you know, that we outsource. We've already outsourced so much of our memory, mm -hmm. um, you know. I always like to think of it that this started not just before books, but with you know language itself <laughs> as a way of you know putting labels on on things. I think Krishna Murthy said that the moment that you tell a child the name of a bird, he no longer sees the bird. Uh -huh. um, and then of course, you know, there's kind of memory techniques where we can uh, memorize large sequences of of text, but somehow in that kind of formalization of of uh, structure we're, we're sort of suppressing the kind of haphazardness and then perhaps even the creativity that we have associated with our normal memories and then books to a further extent 
Um, but now we're in a position where not only memory is potentially being outsourced, but so much of our reasoning will be mm. outsourced. We've talked about... Mm. Uh, and that's not just out of AI. I mean, I think, you know, if we look at actuarial tables and things like, like that, yeah. um, you know, there's, there's clearly benefits for making insurance decisions on lots of data and, and we can't really say that the decision is being taken by a human anymore. They're kind of orchestrating yeah. lots of, yeah. you know, ledgers and um, movement of ink across paper and so forth. But now with, with, with um, AI, we come to a point where, again, this, can, this trend can be continued to another level where it, it, it may possibly put us in not just a kind of quantitatively different state, but qualitatively different one. Um, this is probably the, the apex of our <laughs> speculations. Um, is that something that, that, that justifies um, worrying about? Uh, sort of a future in which humanity continues, no exi exi existential threats, but is completely ateliated. I'm not sure if you know, Socrates had this worry about writing. Oh, right. Yeah. So Socrates was worried that if we started writing, yeah, we our memories would would corrupt. Yeah, we would corrupt our memories because we'd, we'd then be um, pouring our minds on, on on the paper, so to speak, and then our minds would be empty. Yeah, and, and we wouldn't be good at memorizing um, stories and epics and, and all sorts of things. Um, and maybe he was right. Maybe I mean, he, he was, was right, right in a certain sense. We're right. not good at memorising stories. Maybe he's right. We don't know what we've lost because but we're not able to do those things. Yes, that's true. But I would reckon that um, we have, to use Richard Dawkins' expression, an extended phenotype mm. that it, it extends all the way. It's like us, the spider web, the spider's spider web, right? Our extended yeah. phenotype extends to libraries and archives and now digital um, databases and calculators and all sorts of instruments. That's all part of mm. our extended phenotype. So uh, I don't have a problem it, myself thinking of the human as being continuous with their technology. Yeah. So I don't think there is a... A, a worry here because whatever we um, don't have to spend our time doing anymore yeah. it will presumably be on things that we don't really want to do yeah. we won't stop doing the things we want to do it'll only be things we don't want to so that'll free us up to do other things mm. and I don't think anyone would say no we really should do things that we don't want to do uh, up to a point we kind of have to just to be responsible beings in the world but I don't think anyone will say that given the opportunity to spend more time doing what we really want to do and what we really find meaning in mm. we shouldn't take that opportunity so I, I worry less about that mm. there is a concern though there is a real concern about uh, whether our skills will degrade as mm. we no longer do mental arithmetic for example mm. um, well, that, that, concern, that, that horse is well and truly bolted but are we, are we going to lose the skill to interact uh, as human beings? Mm. Is our pro-sociality um, at risk as well? You know, are we going to be 
alone in our rooms, dealing with our screens, talking to people virtually. I mean, these are these are worthwhile questions. But the pandemic sort of does give us a sense that most people were not content with living on screens, and that the the, the personal had priority over the virtual. Yeah, and, and personal contact. Other in other domains, maybe we'll lose our skills, our sort of manual control skills. Yeah, but I reckon people will still want to learn to play the piano and the violin, and they will still want to um, act together and get mm. you know, join choirs and join sports teams. So, and and the, the skills that we do lose because we don't have to exercise them anymore. Is it really that important to us to have those skills? Is it important to know how to operate a forklift? I mean, now it might be, if that's your line of work, but if you could do something else, and if that job gets automated, provided you can find something else easily enough, would you lament the loss of being able to use that? I mean, do, do the, the people that used to produce horseshoes, barriers, mm-hmm. um, uh, you, you still have farriers because horses still need shoes but we don't use them mm. for getting from A to B anymore or anywhere so is that some skill that we've lost yes we have there's a lot less of that skill now is that a problem it's not for me but then I don't come from a, an equestrian family maybe yeah. equestrian families would worry more or lament more about that so it's a, it's not a question that you can really answer in a straightforward way. Yeah. But it's one of those questions which does lead you to think about many different things. I think certainly, yeah, as our phenotype has extended, as it were, we've we both lost and, and gained things. Like, you know, as Socrates said, we've we, we lost this ability to memorise large um, like portions of text and so yeah. forth. Some people still, still do that. Um, yeah. To get Ed Cook on, on my podcast, the founder of Memorizer, a memory champion. Um, and yeah, he spends his time, or some of his time, yeah, memorizing very long pieces of text. But by and large, we've, we've lost those skills, but at the benefit of being able to share huge bodies of text um, through writing, and I can access Socrates' is, is writing now, even though he's no longer with us. I mean, what a marvelous thing. Mm. Um, yeah, right. We wouldn't have had Socrates. Yeah, yeah. We, yeah. Wouldn't, have, we wouldn't have had that. <laughs> to tell us ourselves. to worry about writing. And in, in this day and age, to worry about all the things that computers will take from us. Yeah. And I think there is, you know, there is the potential to have a huge flourishing of um, creativity. I was, had a um, conversation with Christian Book, which is um, one of the early episodes of, of this podcast, and that, that was sort of the, the point we ended up on, that, um, you know, he's a poet. And in writing poetry, that, that there is so much creativity that can be unlocked through LLMs. Um, it can, you know, it can teach you about meter, it can teach you about rhyme, mm-hmm. or it, it can teach you what is bad poetry, because it sort of tends to, to write very direct things. It challenges yeah. you yeah. to be more creative. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, you know... You know, if you want to learn guitar or learn how to speak a new language, I think now is a, a wonderful moment that people can have a kind of personalised yeah. tutor for these things. I mean, yeah, just just brilliant. I, I do... 
there's still at the back of my mind this worry that you know, if the kind of value in some of those tasks might be undermined if if we get to an AGI world where everything is just done better than you know there's <laughs> I've got two weird examples here so one was just on, on my way here I was using Google Maps so I used that time instead of um, thinking about how to get here yeah. to you know actually reflect on the fact that I was using Google Maps and then I could use my time to think about other things yeah. um, uh, but I was motivated to do that because I have this podcast and I'm sort of, you know, I think, oh, I can probably do this a bit better than a machine. Um, the other example that comes to mind is, you know, kind of American teen movies, you, there's this, one of the tropes is that some new kid arrives at the school and say, like, the local jock or something is taken down the level and he becomes a nerd instead, right? Yeah. His, like, his identity, his sense of um, purpose is kind of moved from one sphere to another mm. but what if that local drug like the new guy was also like a great nerd as well and he was just better at everything like there is that worry <laughs> i mean i think this is one of, to, to put in the very speculative box yeah, um, yeah. I, I mean the the scenario that you've sketched assumes that we derive value from things that we can be better at than other mm, people mm. and Maybe that is, I don't want to deny that because I think we do sort of compare ourselves against one another. And oh, what strikes me is that Lee Sodol has, has given up playing Go, yeah. right? Um, yeah, yeah. But maybe he's a very competitive person, and no doubt he is. From, uh, so, as you say, that may not hold true for More me. generally, yeah. yeah. And I can speak for myself, I, I used to learn piano in a sort of competitive way. Mm to you know win competitions and to be better but that has i have no concern with that anymore so now if i play i play purely for pleasure mm. and i just think there'll be other things that the the kid in the school could do that he'll get a kick out of without worrying if he's better yeah. at it than someone else um that's yeah that's that's what that's what i think about yeah. Final. Um, so I, I asked a, a group of uh, kind of angel investors and entrepreneurs that I mean on WhatsApp, what should I ask an AI ethicist? Um, and one of the, the first question, the first question that came back was, why are you guys always so down about the risks of AI, and not talking about the uh, benefits? But I think it's been really interesting as I feel like you have a lot of balance in your yeah. thinking and um, you know we've highlighted a lot of places where AI can yeah liberate a lot of time and, and part of that balance I, I would hope is also suggesting what I did at the, the beginning which is that the fancy schmancy AGI to come may not pose an existential risk mm. or at least not the one that's been thought of whereas the simple stupid AI might pose an existential risk. That's another rebalancing. Yeah, uh, I, I kind of hope to have conveyed. Yeah, and I think the other theme, or well, I want to draw out some of the threads. These are, in some sense, just more of the same, and it's an acceleration or um, augmentation of issues that that we already have, and that's 
not too terrible in that in, in many cases we, we have some of the tools here that we we need to make progress mm. um, so yeah I, I I would say that I'm gonna I should say that we're 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 in the David Hume Tower uh, oh it's not called the David Hume Tower oh, no, anymore. It? it's just 40 George Square oh what a shame but, but it's not it's, called that but I, I'm gonna leave this room feeling slightly more optimistic than I came in I think oh good <laughs> <laughs> Um, yeah, the, 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 the thing that I don't quite understand, I'm not sure how many people do, um, but the thing that I wonder about with AI, it, it actually does relate to general intelligence. And my question is whether it's not, it's, it's not just, um, the, the fact that we take in nutrients as a form, as a fuel, which we then convert to energy. Mm. It's that we do that in a certain way. We do it in a particular way. It's called metabolism. Mm. We take in nutrients which serve both to generate fuel as a source of energy for ourselves, but also as a kind of lubricating oil. Like vitamins and minerals are just also important so that joints work properly. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, is, is metabolism or is life crucial to our intelligence in a way that's deeper than is generally appreciated? In other words, without something like the metabolism that we've got, will it ever be possible to get a general intelligence? Mm. That's, that's what I wonder about. You, you, can, you can plug a system in or give it some means of generating energy and maybe even make it so that, like a thermostat, it kind of knows when its fuel is running out so it can go and plug itself back into the socket and get another shoot of electrons to um, uh, energise itself. But that isn't a metabolism because metabolism, at least in the way we've got it and w- the way we have it as animals is more than just getting energy. It's getting energy, but it's also getting a system of maintenance. And it's something about the way we assimilate nutrients. It's like the thing that we take, whether it's vegetable-based, whether it's mineral-based, whether it's flesh-based, that thing then becomes part of our cells. Mm. It's actually the the nutrients, um, the, the material becomes part of our living tissue in a way that enables growth. Is that necessary for intelligence so that what we really should be looking at if we want artificial general intelligence is something like artificial life? Mm. That's another way of saying it. Can you really have AGI without artificial life? Do we need to recreate the functional dynamics Mm. of a corporeal system of the kind we've got where we take energy in this very particular way. We extract energy, but also nutrients in a way that makes it part of our living substance. Is that crucial to intelligence? That's what I don't know. I'm curious, I don't see the, I know that it's there with us, but I can't see why it would be. I'm, yeah. Mm -hmm. So you can have artificial intelligence without artificial life. I, I think I certainly buy that there's an embodiedness mm-hmm. that AI might need, like to be able to explore 
you know, wander around, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. build up, you know, interact with things. Yeah. Um, but I don't, I, I don't know. I think there is this fragility to life, and and also you point to the, the way that it sort of, bodily incorporates, you know, physically incorporates, its surroundings essentially, uh, you know, the surrounding, fruit or something, <laughs> stuff it, yeah. I eat it. Yeah. I, yeah. I literally incorporate it. I I don't know how. Yeah, I need to think about this more. Like why that might be necessary to to intelligence or well, this is the thing. I don't know if it is either. Mm. This is what I wonder. Mm. So I don't know, but maybe more than you, I entertain the possibility that it somehow could be. Yeah, but I'm not sure. Yeah. That's that's probably the the point. Yeah, yeah. this is a good point because this is a good point to end on as. It opens up probably as a thought. So, <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, John Zarelli, yes. th- thanks so much for, for inviting me here. And uh, whatever this tower is called, we have a wonderful view over uh, Edinburgh and the surrounding fields. And uh, yeah, it's, it's hard not to feel that uh, hopefully we can make this all work. Yeah. yeah. Actually, the view that you can see on your, what's your right. Yeah, would have looked very similar to what <clears throat> David Hume would have seen, except that instead of being surrounded by the new town and all of these other buildings, it was just basically farmland. Mm. But if you see pictures of Edinburgh around the time that David Hume was around, it was um, not all that different from an aerial perspective. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let's hope in another three hundred years or so. <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> People can enjoy a similar view. Yeah. so much for listening multiverses is taking a short break of a couple of weeks mainly because i will be on holiday so the next episode should be in about three weeks time unless i pull something out of the hat we do have some wonderful episodes in the diary to record uh highlights include uh, simon critchley philosopher who's written books on suicide on bowie on football everything under the sun uh also patricio ferrari a translator of fernando Pessoa and himself a poet and uh, incredible polyglot as well and we also have peter schwartz uh, author of the art of the long view and one of the directors of the long now foundation so he thinks about long terminism so if you have any questions for these folks or, or just comments on the um, podcast and people you'd like to see on it uh, or ways that you'd like to see it improve or change uh, feel free to email me at james at multiverses.xyz and don't forget to subscribe and tell your friends and all that jazz. And with that, cheers. You'll find me on the beach. <laughs>